What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Hello listeners, Dominic here. A quick prologue before we begin the episode. In episode 119, I discussed the young prince Tutankhaten, later known as King Tutankhamun. In that episode, I concluded that Tutankhaten's father was probably Akhenaten, but based on subsequent research, I am no longer as confident in that assessment as I used to be. As we will see in this episode, there are many question marks hanging around this material, and my perception has changed over time. Bear that in mind as we go through it, and hopefully I will explain it all clearly. Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast. Episode 128, True Crime, KV55, DNA, CSI, etc. In this episode, we explore the historical crime scene which was discovered in a small, out-of-the-way tomb in the Valley of the Kings. Originally attributed to Queen T, the sepulchre of KV55 presents many questions for historians of the Amarna period. Today, we dig into that tomb and deal with some of the historical interpretations, which arise from DNA studies and investigations into this ancient scene. This episode was brought to you by Henning and Michael, both of whom donated generously to the podcast via PayPal. Henning, Michael, thank you very much for your support. You helped fund the research and kept the daily food flowing. It is greatly appreciated. To everyone listening, thank you for joining me. I hope you enjoy the show. The year was 1907 CE. It was early January, the middle of winter, and the height of the excavation season in Egypt. On this day, a team of workers were clearing a site in the Valley of the Kings. They were exploring part of the hillside, an area covered in an enormous mound of limestone rubble and chips. This immense heap was the result of ancient tomb building. When the masons carved tombs out of the rock, they dumped the excess stone on nearby areas. As a result, large sections of the valley were buried in debris. This made excavation a slow, laborious process. The stone had to be shifted one basket at a time, and even basic clearance took days. The man leading this project was named Edward Ayrton. He was young, just 24 years old, but he had experience. Ayrton had learned the craft of modern archaeology from Flinders Petrie, and had spent years in the field before he came to the Valley of the Kings. Ayrton knew his business, but he was too young to be a major influence in the community. Instead, Ayrton was leading this dig on behalf of his employer, a wealthy American named Theodore M. Davis. Davis was an amateur who had become interested in archaeology while visiting Egypt. He had the money to pay for excavations, and this gave him access to the Egyptological community. 
Pretty soon, Davis was funding digs year after year in the western cemeteries of Luxor. He got lucky a few times. On his bankroll, archaeologists had discovered the tomb of Yuya and Chuyu, the parents of Queen T and the grandparents of Akhenaten. We recounted the story of that discovery in episode 97b. Long story short, Davis had good fortune. He was rich, he was connected, and the digs he funded turned up the goods. In 1907, Davis' team, led by Edward Ayrton, got lucky again. On the 6th of January, a Sunday, the team uncovered the door to an 18th dynasty tomb. The entrance lay at the bottom of a staircase below a shaft dug into the hillside. It had been buried by a mountain of limestone chips left from other tombs nearby. Now, the grave came to light once again, apparently for the first time in 3300 years. Ayrton notified his employer, and on the 9th of January, a group gathered at the tomb entrance. Theodore Davis was there, of course, along with an expert illustrator, Joseph Lyndon Smith, and the antiquities inspector, Arthur Weigall. The team dismantled the tomb's doorway brick by brick. Before them, a corridor appeared, filled with rubble, almost to the roof. Peering into the gap, the men could see that the rubble did not quite fill the hallway. On top of the debris, some wooden panels glittered with gold. Closer inspection revealed that this gold bore the name of T, Queen of Egypt and Mother of Akhenaten. With that in mind, the excavators hoped that they had found T's tomb. Davis and company started to crawl through the narrow space which the ancients had left in the corridor. Making their way carefully over the rubble, the men went into the dark. At the end of the corridor, the rubble spilled out into a chamber. This room was a square hall, devoid of paintings. Against the wall, and lying on the floor, panels of golden wood marked additional pieces of the shrine that had been lying in the corridor. The floor itself was littered in debris, and various trinkets were scattered through the chaos. Over on the right, a small alcove in the wall seemed to contain canopic jars. And just below this alcove, a wooden coffin covered with gold lay amid the wreckage. The tomb was a mess. Clearly it had been ransacked at least once, and parts of the roof had collapsed due to water damage. For 3,000 years, the rainstorms and flash floods which periodically attack the Valley of the Kings had swept over the burial site. Water had seeped in through the bedrock, following cracks in the limestone, and slowly pooled in the chamber. Which meant that many of the burial goods were damaged by water, and even smashed where chunks of the ceiling had crashed down. The results were devastating, both for archaeology and for the owner's immortality. The excavators, Ayrton, Weigal, and others, began their work. They carefully sifted through the rubble, removing dozens of small objects that lay amid the wreckage. They began clearing the entrance corridor to remove the golden shrines. They hauled baskets of rubble out, sifting them for tiny objects like beads and flakes of gold. For many days, the team poured over the remains. And while they did a reasonably good job, the overall speed of the project and the horrible state of the tomb itself meant that many items were not recorded. Some of them simply disappeared, but more on that a little bit later. As the excavators poked through the rubble, pieces of the burial slowly came to light. 
the set of canopic jars tucked away in the alcove once contained the mummy's internal organs. The jars were white travertine, commonly known as alabaster, and they bore symbols, cartouches, of the king to whom they belonged. Sadly, those inscriptions had been damaged, vandalised by Egyptians later in history. So, for now, the texts were illegible. But the heads of these jars survived, and they were quite interesting. The canopic jars were clearly designed for a woman. A female face with a long wig marked the identity of the owner. The wig seemed familiar. It bore a resemblance to those worn by the royal wife Kia, one of Akhenaten's spouses and a queen of the Amarna period. Considering these female canopic jars and the nearby shrine of Queen T, Davis started to think that this was the burial of a royal woman. His most likely candidate was Akhenaten's mother, T herself. This conclusion would inform many of the decisions to come. The team worked laboriously to clear much of the tomb. Finally, the day came that they could study the coffin. When much of the rubble was cleared, the archaeologists, and Davis, could examine the wood and gold box. The coffin was anthropoid, shaped like a human. Its body was covered in imitation feathers made of gold and coloured glass. Down the centre, a band of gold was covered with beautiful hieroglyphics. There was even a cartouche indicating a royal figure. Sadly, the cartouche had been erased, its centre chiselled away, leaving a dark wooden patch with no glyphs. Whoever lay inside, their name had been erased. This was a problem which got even worse when they looked at the coffin's head. At its crown, the coffin wore an enormous wig, a mass of imitation hair spreading out from the forehead. A cobra, Uraeus, perched on the brow, and a false beard hung from the chin. Put together, the beard and cobra suggested that the coffin was royal, and it seems that it was originally designed for a woman, but then modified to suit a male. A strange situation, one that was not particularly common. The mystery deepened when they looked at the face. The coffin's visage was haunting. It was gold, with beautifully inlaid eyes. But someone had torn away a huge chunk of the original face. The cheeks and mouth were missing, with only a blank expanse of wood left behind. One eye remained, but this was missing the pupil, so that only a chunk of plaster remained to fill the socket. The effect was macabre, ghostly. Looking at the excavation photo, it reminds you of an old crime scene. The coffin itself lay atop a bed, or beer, that supported the container and kept it off the ground. Unfortunately, water damage and the impact of stones falling from the roof had split the coffin and shattered the bed. As the excavators looked more closely, they could see that the coffin's lid had separated from the body, and between these two parts, sections of the mummy were visible. The body was rotted and ruined, a mess of damaged bits for the excavators to untangle. Clearly, this job was going to be extremely difficult. It would require patience, care, and skill. Sadly, Theodore Davis had none of these traits. Davis was anxious to open the coffin as soon as possible. The chaos of the tomb and the strange assortment of goods had apparently prompted an argument regarding its owner. Some of the team thought that the burial belonged to Queen T, 
whose name was on the golden shrines. Others thought that it might be Akhenaten, who could potentially be the mummy inside the coffin. Either result was potentially a jackpot in terms of historical significance. Hoping to resolve the issue, Davis wanted to open the coffin now and see the corpse within. On January 25th, 1907, the boss gave his orders and the team removed the coffin's lid. This was dangerous. The lid was relatively intact, but still fragile, and when removed, it revealed a mummy in terrible condition. The body was wrapped in bandages, but these were, quote, badly worn. Water damage had rotted many parts of the container, and sheets of gold had fallen from the coffin lid onto the mummy's body. The mummy itself was terribly fragile, but still, Davis insisted on viewing it there and then. As they removed the lid, the team could see the damage more clearly. The mummy itself was in two pieces. The head had been detached from the body sometime in antiquity. Whether this was accidental or intentional vandalism was unclear, but the body was clearly in a friable condition. The slightest misstep would lead to catastrophic damage. This problem was made clear when Davis reached out to touch one of the mummy's teeth. The skeleton had excellent teeth, straight and bright, but when Davis touched one, the tooth promptly crumbled into dust. That should have been a warning. The body was in terrible condition, and unwrapping it without proper conservation could be disastrous. Sadly, Davis ignored this, and insisted on unwrapping here and now. What followed was horrific. Quote, we then took off the gold crown and attempted to remove the mummy cloth in which the body was wrapped. But the moment I attempted to lift a bit of the wrapping, it came off in a black mass exposing the ribs. Subsequently, the wrappings of the mummy were entirely removed, exposing the bones. End quote. Bloody hell. If there was an award for worst destruction of artifacts since Indiana Jones, well, I would give it to Davis. The big boss, rich and influential, basically destroyed the mummy in his haste to determine its identity. Before too long, the scraps of flesh which remained were disappearing, and when one of the team, Joseph Smith, reached into the chest to retrieve a bead, parts of the flesh simply crumbled away, dissolving off the bones. Yikes. I cannot stress enough how poorly this excavation was done. Davis's haste led him to order examinations that should have taken weeks. There was no conservation, no protection. Davis simply commanded his team to unpack the coffin and dismantle the body inside. The results were catastrophic. Looking back, other members of the team suggested that the mummy had originally been reasonably intact when the coffin was first opened. It was damaged and rotted, but the flesh remained enough for some observers to comment on its facial features. Had the team used proper methods of preservation, they might have saved the mummy for future study. But after unwrapping, all that was left was bones. This was a disaster, both for conservation and for scholarship. The discovery of KV-55 and its initial opening could not have happened in worse circumstances. Although skilled excavators like Ayrton were working on this project, the boss, Theodore Davis, was an amateur, a wealthy, influential amateur, which is all kinds of dangerous when you're trying to do a job. 
Unfortunately, this is what we are stuck with. After the break, we will examine the mummy of this individual more closely. Even when it was opened, KV-55 was a confusing mess. That only gets worse when we consider the body of the individual buried here. In chapter 2, we dig into the big questions. Who was lying in the coffin, and what does their identity mean for the history of this period? That is chapter 2, after the break. See you in a moment. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. In 1907, a strange tomb came to light in the Valley of the Kings. Dubbed KV-55, this monument was 18th dynasty, and it contained objects related to at least two royal figures. The tomb had a set of shrines belonging to Queen T, and a coffin designed for a woman but adapted to a man. When it was first opened, the tomb presented a confusing jumble of artefacts and images. This uncertainty only got worse when examiners turned to the mummy. The KV-55 mummy presents many problems for historians working on this material. Multiple studies have tackled the issue and come to wildly different conclusions, and it seems like for every answer or hypothesis that appears, a dozen more questions rear their heads. KV-55 is easily the most analysed, discussed, and debated tomb in all of Egyptology. Obviously, we are not going to solve this problem in this podcast. It would be nice to tap into that true crime podcast magic and money, but that is unrealistic. The KV-55 tomb and its occupants are victims many times over. Damaged in antiquity, then destroyed by a botched investigation, This is a case study in how not to exhume a mummy. With that in mind, let's tackle some of the big questions. Who is the body likely to be, and what does their identity mean for the larger history? In January 1907, Theodore Davis ordered his team to open the coffin that lay in KV-55. With disgusting haste and total disregard for preservation, Davis removed the wrappings and, in the process, destroyed much of the body. As a result, later studies have had to work from incomplete information, and this has hampered scientists' ability to identify the corpse. In these circumstances, you can understand that there was a lot of confusion about the identity of this mummy. Initially, excavators even had trouble deciding its sex. When the team first opened the coffin, they found a body that was lying in a characteristically female position. The body's left arm was raised with its hand lying on the chest. Its right arm was resting at the side with one hand on the thigh. This pose is associated with royal women, 
Royal men tend to have been buried with their hands crossed over their chest or over their stomach, so the body was lying in a distinctly feminine posture. This may have led to confusion, and it's understandable why this would happen. To resolve the issue, Davis asked the opinion of two surgeons, quote-unquote, who happened to be in the valley. In his own recollection, which is dubious, Davis noted, quote, The surgeons kindly made the examination and reported that the pelvis was evidently that of a woman. Sometime thereafter, the bones were sent to Dr. G. Elliot Smith, professor of anatomy in Cairo. Alas, Dr. Smith declared the sex to be male. It is only fair to state that the surgeons were deceived by the abnormal pelvis and conditions of the examination. End quote. I have little regard for Davis' abilities, but at least he was honest enough to acknowledge the discrepancies in identification. The confusion is understandable. Whoever this mummy is, they had a small figure with delicate features, and it seems that the accessories also hinted at a female identity. The mummy's head, which was dislocated from the body, wore a golden ornament in the shape of a vulture. Again, this is usually associated with royal women, and it is possible the vulture was put there as a makeshift crown. That is speculative, though. The ornament is technically a pectoral, a type of necklace which extends over the chest. It is unclear if this pectoral was supposed to be on the head, or if it slipped off the body when the head was dislocated. If this was intentional, it is another piece of female paraphernalia on a male body. So, the mummy was lying in a feminine pose, and it may have been wearing objects in the style of a woman. But the bones, apparently, belong to a male, which suggests that there is a mismatch between the mummy's sex and its gender. If the mummy is male, then its posture and burial goods are confusing. If it is female, then it has somehow been misidentified by multiple scientific studies. Which seems a bit unlikely, but not impossible. Either way, something does not add up when it comes to the identity. We will return to this specific question in an upcoming episode, when we look back at the reign of Akhenaten and consider his reception in the modern world. For now, we will simply say that the KV-55 skeleton is unusual, and it defies easy explanation. Beyond the sex and gender, the second big question is the mummy's age. The KV-55 skeleton has been examined multiple times, and the conclusions regarding its age are contradictory to say the least. Depending on the study you read, the skeleton could be as young as 15, or as old as 45. This is a massive problem for historians, and it really complicates the picture. If the mummy is older, it could be Akhenaten, but if it is younger, that is far less likely. Most scientific studies, about 95%, have put the body between 18 and 26 years of age, but a couple of recent ones have tried to put it in the 30s or 40s. Historically, the younger age is probably the correct assessment. Forensic examinations of skeletons in other contexts outside Egypt have found problems with how analysts age different bodies. A study in England determined that Skeletons in the younger age bracket, say 20 to 30, tended to appear older than they actually were. Meanwhile, skeletons that were in the much older age bracket, say 50 to 60, 
tended to appear younger than they were, which means that there is a problem in how anatomists identify the age of bones. For the KV55 skeleton, this study suggests that the body is far more likely to be on the younger side of the spectrum, 25, 20, or possibly even younger. It is much less likely to be older than 30, and this is what the majority of scientific studies have said previously. Obviously, this subject is way outside of my expertise, and the expertise of most Egyptologists. Since I am not a forensic or anatomical expert, I will go with the majority opinion and say that the person probably died somewhere in their 20s. Again, this raises many questions about the identity of this person. If the body is Akhenaten, then he must have been much younger than historians think. Again, this is a question we will return to in a future episode. For now, let's move to the last problem. The final big issue with KV55 is how the mummy is related to other people of the 18th dynasty. The question of relationships is a big one, and it provides far fewer answers than the public may think. The KV55 skeleton has been examined on a genetic level more than once. There was a study in the 1960s which compared the body with that of Tutankhamun, and this determined that they were in the same blood group. That provided a basic sense that the two people were related, which is a good start. Then, in the early 2000s, the body, along with others of this dynasty, was examined for traces of ancient DNA. This second study is quite famous, but not always for good reasons. The DNA study of the royal mummies was published in 2010, and the results were announced with great fanfare. For some observers, the study seemed to present a breakthrough, a solution to problems that historians had failed to resolve. Unfortunately, the scientific reality was a bit less optimistic. When the DNA study first appeared in publication in the Journal of the American Medical Association, it immediately faced criticism on several points. I do not have time to delve into the full details of that here, but there are references to the studies on the podcast website, link in the description. The basic gist of what happened goes like this. Firstly, the 2010 study claimed to have gathered DNA from several different mummies, but right out the gate, observers questioned whether the DNA itself was actually viable. DNA degrades over time, and different types or components degrade faster than others. For some specialists, it seemed highly improbable that DNA would survive over 3,300 years. Then, there is the fact that many of these mummies have been damaged, manhandled, and moved, sometimes more than once. This was a problem for some observers, who suggested the extraction of DNA might not be viable, and whatever DNA survived might have been contaminated by later circumstances. I'm going to trust the authors of the 2010 study that they took these factors into account and made proper precautions for them, but the issue is important to acknowledge. Assuming the DNA was viable, there were still significant problems with the study's methods, specifically its methods of analysis. The DNA study presented numerous conclusions on a wide variety of topics, 
But the authors did not release all of the information they had gathered, and they neglected to discuss the full range of possible conclusions. This was a problem. DNA study is not a 100% certain science. There are substantial opportunities for variation in some results. In other words, the same DNA can point to different possible conclusions, and scientists are supposed to acknowledge those possibilities when publishing. Unfortunately, the 2010 study did not do this, which meant that many of its conclusions were unreliable. They presented one interpretation as the fact, and they ignored others, including theories that were equally viable. I won't go through all of the possible issues with this, but I would like to highlight a couple related to KV-55. The first has to do with the mummy's relationship to other bodies of the dynasty. At a basic level, KV-55 belongs to the royal family of Dynasty 18, and we can be reasonably sure of that, at least. Archaeological context puts the mummy in this time and place, and two studies have suggested that the body is related to Tutankhamun. So, fair enough, they are part of the same family. But how are KV-55, Tutankhamun, and other mummies of this family related in the specific details? This is where the 2010 study had problems. The DNA results indicated a close relationship between KV-55 and Tutankhamun. They were approximately one generation apart, and they shared the same ancestors. That may sound reasonably secure, and on this basis, the 2010 study declared that the KV-55 mummy was the father of Tutankhamun. Unfortunately, there was a problem. The DNA results could have been interpreted in different ways. It is equally possible that KV-55 was Tutankhamun's uncle, but the 2010 study did not acknowledge those uncertainties. Instead, it presented its results as 100% fact. This has been an issue that several Egyptologists have touched upon, most notably Professor Mark Gabold and Professor Aidan Dodson. In separate studies, published in 2013 and 2014, both Gabold and Dodson note that the KV-55 mummy is not definitively the father of Tutankhamun. There is a substantial margin of error in the DNA results. Unfortunately, the 2010 study did not acknowledge this possibility. Instead, they said that KV-55 was the father. End of discussion. This is a serious problem with the methodology. As observers have noted, the DNA could support multiple interpretations, and we have to deal with those when building reconstructions. That got a little bit convoluted, so let me summarise. Basically, the DNA information could have supported two possibilities. Either the KV-55 mummy was Tutankhamun's father, or he was his uncle. That is a massive discrepancy with big implications for this person's identity. Following their declaration that KV-55 was the father, the authors also said that this mummy was Akhenaten. That was another problem. Although Egyptologists suspect that Akhenaten was Tutankhamun's father, that conclusion is still uncertain. So even if KV-55 is the biological father, 
that does not automatically mean it is Akhenaten. We will come back to this question in a future episode, but for now, it is enough to know that the idea of KV55 equals Tutankhamun's father, and therefore equals Akhenaten, is a lot less certain than the authors of this study had claimed. I am not here to badmouth the DNA study or its authors. I am pointing out the challenges that scientists and historians face when trying to identify these mummies. The DNA study presented many conclusions as facts, quote-unquote, but did not acknowledge the other viable interpretations. This is a major problem for Egyptologists, because now the public thinks that the question has been answered. Unfortunately, the reality is quite different. While the genetic study has given us more information, it has not answered nearly as many questions as people might think. For Egyptologists working on this material, the DNA study is far less useful than we would like. So, the KV-55 mummy does not give up its answers easily. Numerous studies have presented different interpretations, but the results do not agree with one another. Depending on the test, the mummy's age can vary wildly, and its relationship to other mummies is uncertain. As a result, its identity is still a question mark. At the very least, we can say that the mummy belongs to the royal family of Dynasty 18. It is probably a male, and it probably belongs to either Akhenaten or Smenkhare. But beyond those vague probablys, the evidence does not yet support a single conclusion that encompasses all of the issues. This may sound frustrating, and it is. But to finish on a slightly positive note, let us run through a couple of different scenarios regarding this mummy. If the body is Akhenaten or Smenkare, what does that mean for the archaeological material? And if it is not one of those people, well, what's the deal? Hopefully, a quick rundown will help make sense of the problems. The first scenario is that the KV-55 mummy is Akhenaten, king of Egypt. In this case, we must explain why the skeleton appears to only be 20 to 25 years old. Did Akhenaten suffer from a delayed physical development, or is our assessment of his age completely wrong? Depending how you answer those questions, either one can have a massive impact on the history of this ruler. The second scenario is that the mummy is Smenkhare. In this case, the body's age seems more appropriate and it would explain why his coffin was repurposed from someone else. The young man probably died unexpectedly, spoilers, and they had to improvise his burial goods. On the other hand, none of the burial goods found in KV-55 bore the name of Smenkare, which is a curious oversight. Even if we allow for people removing the name from his goods, we have to wonder why nothing survived. These questions are equally difficult to reconcile. The third scenario, and possibly the most unlikely, is that the mummy is not actually a male. The original excavation reports indicate the body still had most of its flesh, so perhaps the genitalia were partly intact. In that scenario, it is possible the original identification as a female might be correct, which would add a whole other layer to the historical story. That is just a possibility, and it is definitely the weakest scenario of the bunch. Nevertheless, it has to be mentioned, just in case it is correct. 
As you can see, these three scenarios each have their own merits and their own problems. Despite the best efforts of scholars and scientists, there is nothing like a consensus just yet. It probably does not help that the historical figures involved, Akhenaten, T, and Smenkhkare, are some of the most famous names in Egyptology. Ideally, you want scientists to examine this material in a blind context, to take away all of the baggage and let people analyse it on its own merits. But even that would not solve the problem. The KV-55 tomb was in poor condition to begin with, and the man in charge, Theodore Davis, was, quite frankly, the worst possible person to come across these finds. So many objects have disappeared, and the ones that survive were not adequately conserved. All of this adds up to a discovery that raises more questions than it answers. We can only imagine what might have happened if the tomb had appeared in 2007 rather than 1907. But that is wishful thinking. For now, historians must struggle on, hopefully making their way closer to a satisfactory conclusion. So, who is the KV-55 mummy? Well, I honestly don't know. There are compelling arguments for both Akhenaten and Smenkhkare, but there is far less certainty than we would like. In terms of facts, all we can say is that this individual died during the late Amarna period. They were probably aged between 20 and 25, and were buried in a coffin designed originally for a woman. The body itself was interred in a feminine pose, which raises questions about their gender. Genetically, they are a close relative of Tutankhamun, possibly a parent or an uncle. Beyond that, there are many potential interpretations, but the facts are far less certain than people realise. Which leaves us in a frustrating situation. Every new piece of information is potentially a big one. The tiniest scrap may change history in significant ways. For our purposes, the KV-55 tomb is an excellent example of how difficult scientific Egyptology is. Even at the best of times, there is little certainty. Every historian must deal with the fact that their reconstructions are more like jigsaw puzzles, where half of the pieces are missing. Sometimes the picture is quite clear, and interpretations are robust. But for every complete picture, there is a KV-55. A picture so jumbled, so poorly preserved, we can only hope to put a few pieces together. Situations like this remind historians to be humble, to recognise the gaps in our knowledge, and to build reconstructions cautiously. More than a century after its discovery, KV-55 remains a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. Perhaps there is a key just waiting to be discovered, and hopefully we will have our answers. One day. Thank you for joining me on this episode of the History of Egypt podcast. Stick around after the music for a short epilogue where we look at the strange afterlife of KV-55's artefacts. Most of them remained in the Cairo Museum, but others turned up in places where they should not have. Along the way, someone even managed to lose half of the coffin. That story after the music.
The artefacts of KV-55 have a confusing history. During the initial excavations, some objects were stolen by men working in Davis's team. These were small pieces, presumably pocketed by people, which went unnoticed in the general hubbub. Soon after the opening, these items appeared on the antiquities market in Luxor, where they came to the attention of a man named Howard Carter. Carter alerted Davis to the situation, and Davis trotted off to the dealers to recover his items. Hoping to maintain good relations with the wealthy benefactor, the antiquities dealer gave the objects back for free. And you might expect Davis to have sent them to Cairo as part of the KV-55 collection. Unfortunately, Davis decided to keep these objects and add them to his personal collection. He took them to his home in the United States of America and promptly added them to his trove. If you needed any additional reasons to dislike Theodore Davis, this would be another one. Strangely, Davis did not keep the items that he stole. He gave some away to relatives and friends, dispersing them even further. As a result, the smaller items disappeared into the ether, unknown to museums and to science. Over the years, parts of this collection turned up here and there, and eventually, one of Davis's descendants alerted specialists to some objects that he had inherited. Some of these were identified, but again, they did not return to their home. As a result, many of them remain unknown to science. The larger pieces from the tomb, the shrines, coffin, mummy, etc., all went to Cairo Museum. There, they stayed for many years, but at some point, a couple more objects disappeared. Sometime between 1915 and 1931, part of the KV-55 coffin vanished from the Cairo storerooms. The lower half of the coffin, made of gold and coloured glass, was lost, and for many years its location remained a mystery. In the 1980s, though, the coffin turned up again at a museum in Munich. How it got there, no one is saying, but it certainly was not sent by the Cairo Museum, which resulted in a bit of argument when Cairo became aware of the situation. To their credit, the Munich Museum preserved the coffin and restored it, and in the early 2000s they gave it back to Egypt. Now, the bottom and top halves of the KV-55 coffin are together once again. They lie in the Amano room of the Cairo Museum, where you can visit them, at least for now. KV-55 is a strange tomb, and its objects have gone on a strange journey over the past 3,300 years. Hopefully, future study will provide more answers on the many, many questions that surround these objects. For now, they remain one of Egyptology's most frustrating collections. Still, they are fascinating. We cannot deny that. The History of Egypt podcast is generously supported by my backers on Patreon. Extra special thanks go to Ellen, Kevin, Linda, Neil, and Terry, my priest-level backers who help keep the show running. Thank you very much, folks. I am eternally grateful for your support. The music for this episode is by Keith Zizzer and Ancient Lyric. Follow the links in the episode description to hear more, and to purchase their music for yourself.
As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.